1: We've been in this study of the life of Joseph for, I guess, this is our 10th week, and um, we've seen in the life of Joseph that he's really just had a series of trials and tragedies marked by some mountains. We've seen this difficult childhood that he endured. We've witnessed hatred put upon him and cruelty by his brothers. We've seen him work as a slave, falsely accused, and then imprisoned. We've seen him abandoned and forgotten in prison. We have seen him elevated by the grace of God to a position of prestige, power, and prominence. We watched two weeks ago as he was reunited with his brothers, and then last week we saw him reunited with his father. But in addition to all that, as we've been walking through this, we've seen many of the great doctrines in the Bible put on display in the life of Joseph But like week number one, I said there was one doctrine that kind of marks the life of Joseph. It is the doctrine of divine providence. And we've seen God and his divine providence and his sovereignty interwoven in everything that Joseph has been through. Let me just quickly define for you once again what the doctrine of divine providence says. It says that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he directs them to fulfill his purpose. So over the last 10 weeks, we've seen over and over again that God is bigger than we are. He's bigger than history. He's bigger than creation. He's bigger than people. He's bigger than sin. And he's bigger than the sinner. And I take great comfort in that. And the truth is, God is, God is behind all the events that occur in our lives There's no accidents, there's no coincidences, there's only providence in the outworking of the perfect will of God. Now true, we may not always at all times see it from our perspective, but from his infinite perspective it is true. Nonetheless, it does not necessarily mean that it's not happening because I don't understand it or agree with it. God is God, God is sovereign, he is working all things to his glorious end. So as we are closing out the life of Joseph we're going to see this once again that Joseph as he's nearing the, the end of his life that he has deep conviction in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God he has confidence in it and so we're going to see really kinda three steps that Joseph takes as his life is coming to an end that demonstrates his complete assurance of the providence and sovereignty of God. And once again, his whole story began with that. And man, it's going to be bookmarked at the end, just glorifying this great doctrine. So let's get into it. Chapter 50, verse 15. Let's just look at it. First thing we're going to see that Joseph does nearing the end of his life is he releases his past. He releases his past. I'm just going to be reading through these verses word by word. You can follow along with me. Take notes if if, if you desire. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, that's Jacob, Israel, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. All right, here's what's going on. After Jacob and his family moved to Egypt, they settled in the land of Goshen. And they live there really happily for many years. Joseph gets to redeem a lot of the time with his father. He has a lot of time with his father, Jacob. But the deal is, Jacob was an old man when he got there. He was 130 years old. In Genesis 48 and 49, we're told that at the age of 147, he dies. He dies. But before he dies, what he does is he gathers his sons together. Jacob does. He calls them together, and he blesses them, and he instructs them. And here's what he says. He says, when I die, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want to be buried in Canaan. And he dies. And in chapter 49, 48, going to 49, you see this whole thing. They take him from Egypt to Canaan, and they bury him there. now we get to, to our verse, and we see that the 11 brothers, they kind of think, I'm guessing that, you know, Joseph, Joseph's been a really nice guy, right? He's a good Christian guy. But now that our dad is dead, will he hold a grudge? Is he going to be bitter? Will he now seek revenge that our father is now dead? Here's what they're worried about. Maybe you've experienced something similar. You've sinned against somebody, okay? Okay you repent of it. You ask them to forgive you. They do forgive you. Time passes, five or ten years, who knows, and then something happens that causes them to readdress the sin that they've already forgiven you for and that you've already repented of, and that's kind of what these guys are afraid of. They're like, what if he revisits this? What if the only thing that was holding back his hand of wrath upon us was our father? Maybe they're thinking, Joseph isn't a good man. Maybe he's not a godly man. Maybe he's not an honest man. Maybe he's not a trustworthy man. You see, in this question is really an indictment. In this question, they're really saying something like this, I'm not sure if Joseph is the man that he's been claiming to be. Maybe he's not that sincere. And so they fear and they get together and they cook up a scheme big surprise, right? Like, like, that's what these guys do. That's what these guys do, right? And we've seen this before. They don't know what to do. They don't, pr- they don't pray to God. They don't go up to Joseph and say, hey, Joseph, we're kind of worried about this. They get together behind closed door and they go scheming. Here's the scheme. They're worried. They're worried. Dad died. Joseph's going to get mad. Look at verse 16. Here's their plan. Verse 16. So they, that's the brothers, sent a message to Joseph See, they're not even gonna go to his face at first They want to send a message saying your father gave this command before he died say to Joseph please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you and now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father huh (laughs) that's kind of suspicious right I mean, mean, you read this and you I read this and I think, really, that's the best plan these 11 guys have. I mean, seriously, it's, it's, it's really not that good of a plan. Their plan is to lie. That's their plan. That's a really juvenile plan. So they send this message to Joseph and they're like, hey, Joseph, listen, right before dad died, right before he died, you went out of the room and he got us and he told us to tell you this. You didn't hear it, we heard it, and we're just passing it on. If you don't believe us, just ask any of us, because we'll all tell you the the same thing, right? That's their plan. You kind of read this, the letter in and of itself, just reading it, reeks of suspicion, right? It does. You kind of scratch your head, and it got me to thinking um, I kind of figured out why, Joseph, why, why Jacob liked Joseph best because these guys are some knuckleheads. They're just knuckleheads. That's their plan. That's their plan. But I want you to notice how Joseph responds. This is the last part of verse 17. Here's what Joseph, how he responds. It's interesting. It's not what you might anticipate. It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. That's an interesting response. It's an interesting response. They receive this message, and, and he, weeps. He, doesn't, he weeps. He doesn't say anything. He just starts crying, and the question is, why does Joseph cry when he receives this message? And the reason why is he knows it's a lie. He knows it's a lie. They're lying to him, and it breaks his heart, and they're lying about his father. breaks his heart. And they're essentially saying, as they've already alluded to, Joseph, we don't trust you. Joseph, we don't think you're sincere. We don't take you at your word. We don't know if you're godly. We don't know if you're good. We don't know if you're gracious, merciful, compassionate, or forgiving. And we actually, jo- Joseph, we actually think you might hurt us. We think you might hurt us. Joseph reads that, and it breaks his heart. I'm sure he's thinking, guys, I've shown you nothing but grace upon grace, right? I have fed you and your kids and your families. I've housed you. I've loved you. I've cared for you for many years. I've never done evil to you. Never done evil to you. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So, he's crying. He's weeping. And so the brother's plan, I guess, is after they send the message, then they're going to walk into the room and talk to him. He's weeping. His heart is broken. Verse 18, they come in. Here's what it says his brothers also came, check it out, and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So these guys come in, they fall down, they say, we're we're, we're your slave. Once again, this is the routine, deja vu. This has happened before. This is their go-to response. Same dance, different song, right? They've done this before. They've done this before. So the question now is, How is Joseph going to respond? Right? What is he going to respond to this? Here's a better question. No, and I think we we should think about this even this week. How would you respond to this? I mean, how would you respond? I mean, he could look at his brothers and say, That's it. That's it, man. I'm done. Right? I've been nothing but good to you. And you repay me with lies and lies about my father. I'm washing my hands of you. Gonna put you in jail. And the deal is, who could blame jo- Who would blame Joseph if he did that? Who would? Seriously, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if Joseph was alive today and we were giving him counsel, or some Christians were counseling him, they would say something like this Joseph, you've done enough. Joseph, you're not a doormat. You cannot keep showing grace to these people. How are they going to learn, Joseph? Joseph, you got to teach them a lesson, Joseph. You've shown them so much grace, and they continue to sin against you and lie against you and hurt you and harm you. Joseph, you know what you got to do? you got to stand your ground. you got to get your point across. Teach them a lesson. You've gone the extra mile. In fact, Joseph, you can pat yourself on the back. You've gone so far, who would fault him? Who would fault him? Just wash your hands of these guys. You know who would fault him? God. God would. You see, God hasn't treated Joseph like that. Joseph shouldn't treat them like that. I'm glad God doesn't treat me like that because I find myself continually in this position before a holy God. And I come to him and I fall and I repent and he forgives. It's a gracious picture. And Joseph doesn't respond how many of us might respond. Look at verse 19. He responds as God has responded to him. Look, but Joseph said to him, To them, do not fear, it's really interesting here, for am I in the place of God? In other words, Joseph is saying, don't fear me. I'm just a Christian like you. I'm not, I'm your brother. I'm not going to seek vengeance. I've sinned against God. God has forgiven me. You've sinned against me, and I'm going to forgive you. I'm not God I may be the second most powerful man in the world at this time, but I am not God. You've broken my heart. You've taken years of my life. You've done evil, and now you're lying to me. But I am not in God's place. You've hurt me. But this isn't between you and I. This is between you and the the living God. You shouldn't fear me. You should fear God. God. You shouldn't try to make me happy. You should try to make God happy. This is demonstrating his absolute confidence in the providence of God. God's in control. He releases his past. And now we're going to get to verses 20 and 21. We're going to see a second step, a second thing he does that lets us know of his... Utmost confidence in the sovereignty and providence of God, and I have it here. He remembers God's providence, he just thinks upon God's providence. We come to verse 20, and I want to talk about it in just a moment because it's one of the most important verses in the entire book of Genesis, and it is one of the most comforting verses in the Bible. I would say this, church, if you get and understand verse 20, you will indeed sleep better at night. Because when you think about it, I mean, you think about it, right? Joseph is a man who has suffered greatly, sold into slavery. He couldn't even attend his own mother's funeral, falsely accused of rape, sent to prison. I mean, you list up all these things that Joseph's going through, has gone through, and you start to think, I think this, I think this. How in the world does a dude get up in the morning? I mean, his life's been really hard. How does he get up in the morning, let alone get up and worship a great God? It's because he understands verse 20. Let me read it to you. Joseph is still talking. Here's what he says to them. As for you, he's looking at all 11 of them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today amazing response. It's amazing response. And I don't want us to miss this because there is a tendency for the world to miss this and even some Christians kind of bleed into this thinking. He says you guys, he's looking at them. He says, "You guys meant to do evil. You did evil. You did evil. It wasn't an accident." You see, the Word of God is crystal clear on this, and my experience is crystal clear on this as well. People are not essentially good. And we don't work from pure motives and have good intentions. The world, a lot of the world thinks that way. And even some Christians tend to think that way. And they'll say something like this. They'll say something like this. Well, those guys aren't really bad yeah, they had bad circumstances, right? They're, they're essentially good people. They just happen to do a bad thing. But no, Joseph says, no, you guys are evil. You meant to do evil, and you did evil. And we don't like to hear that. People don't like to hear it. But it's true. We're not essentially good. We're not... The Bible testifies to this over and over again. It's called the depravity of man. I'm just going to read some verses, just to so, oh, we could go on all day for this, but I'm not going to do it. But look, um, for all have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For we all have committed evil. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born into it by nature and by choice. From within the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adulteries. The heart is more deceitful than all else, else and desperately sick. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth. We are not essentially good. We don't even lean that way. We don't. And if you think, and many do, but if you think, if your hope is riding on the hope that at some point in history, in the future, we're all going to get our act together and be good because we're essentially good and trustworthy and poor. Pure, you're going to be disappointed because we're not. This is where the doctrine of providence is so beautiful because if your hope is resting in the fact that no matter what, Evil people do, right? You, you rest. The people, evil people do, but in the providence of God, we rest on. And I said that poorly, but I'm trying to say that God is bigger than the evil, bigger than the sin. He's bigger than what we're seeing going on when you turn on the news. So, you got people who sin and they're not essentially good, and there's God who is good and He's working all things to His glory, and there's hope in that, and there's joy in that. And Joseph just said, You dudes are evil, and you did evil, but we got a God who's bigger and better and more gracious and more merciful that supersedes all of that, and He meant it for good. Now, Quickly, let me thread a needle. Quickly. This does not mean that God is evil. God's not evil. John says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God isn't bad. God is good. Satan, demons, people, bad. God, angels, good. But when bad happens, God can indeed use that bad for good. It's all powerful. Oh, you rest on that, church. You rest on that. He's sovereign. He's good. And no, there is nothing you can do to throw God off of his plan. It will happen. Um, there's a similar verse in the New Testament. Um, Romans 8, 28, Paul says this. It's the same thing. God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God's That's providence. God's bigger. God's bigger. So the first thing, he's looking at dudes, dudes. You're evil. There's actually a whole sermon I could talk about there. Um, I'm not going to, but I will tell you this. People don't like to hear they're evil. Hey, I thank God someone told me. I really do. And someone would stand before me and say, Travis, you are not as awesome as you think you are, right? You're not as good as you think you are. In fact, Travis, I'm gonna tell you something. Not only are you not as good as you think you are, you're a sinner, and you do evil things. God, the Spirit blew that up in my heart, and I praise God for that. Keep moving. He ain't done. Verse 21. So do not fear. I will not, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke, check it out, kindly to them. Joseph says, hey guys, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. God's on his throne. He's changed my heart. And I will never, I will never treat you poorly. I am your brother and I love you. Providence of God. So we see he releases his past, past, past. We see he remembers God's providence, and finally, verses 22 through 26. These are some beautiful verses. He rests on God's promise. I spent probably the bulk of my time thinking on these these, these next two verses. I I just want to read these to you. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years Twenty-three, Verse 23 is so precious to me. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were counted as Joseph's own. I don't know if those two verses would have meant to me at the age of 25 what they mean to me today. But I tell you what, when I look at that church, that is the picture of a blessed life. That is what the blessed life looks like. You get to the end of your life. You love God and you're loving your family. You're 110 years old. You're bouncing your, your grandchildren on your knee and all your family loves God. That's a blessed life. You know you're blessed when you're 110 years old and you're still breathing and you still love Jesus. You got sons, you got grandsons, you got granddaughters, you got great-granddaughters, and they all come over to your house, and you're sitting there in your old age, and I'm sure you're cranky. I don't know, man, but you love Jesus. And they sit there on your lap, and you tell them about the faithfulness of Jesus. That is the blessed life. And I'll tell you, even today, man, that's one of my favorite things with my family. And my, my kids are 8 and 10, and when I can sit down and just tell them about how good God's been to me, and I can tell them how he's, he, how he's, 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 he's helped me and my wife in, in bad situations and good situations, man, we can pull out maps, and we're looking at countries, and I'll say, Son, you see that country there? God saves in that country. I know because I was there. It's a blessed life. I can't wait to get to the end of my life if the Lord allows me to, 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 if he does tarries and he allows me to live longer, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. But this, if I'm with my grandkids and and, and and, 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 and and, and to tell them about Jesus, I think and I fear, and this is what I was thinking on, that maybe too many of us may have bought into the false understanding of what the blessed life is. Maybe we think that the blessed life is money and comfort and all of these things, but that is not what the Bible teaches. That's not the picture that we have here. The blessed life is finishing strong, having served the church, loving your wife ferociously and raising your children to fear and love the Lord. And I was thinking, and I was thinking of these verses specifically in the blessed life, and where I want to end at if the Lord allows me to. Um, I remember this when I was younger. Let's say I was in early high school and I did, you know, early high school kids, um, they, they, they spend their time. Okay, I don't know about all high school. I'm talking about myself, so if you're in high school, please do not come up to me and say that's not what we're like. I'm talking about myself, okay? No emails necessary, okay? But I know this. We would spend our time foolishly. We would talk foolish and we would do foolish things, and I remember this. I remember I was in a room with some of my friends and we were talking foolishly, acting foolishly, doing foolish things. And a man came in, a man that we all knew loved the Lord, loved his wife ferociously, served the church. He was a godly man. He walked in the room where we were at and we all got silent. The foolish talk ceased the foolish actions ceased and I thought to myself as I looked to that man that's what I want that's what I want several years ago I was blessed to be leading a Bible study in the basement of a home and um, there was a lot of young men and God was saving them the same thing happened and I'm preaching and, and whatever and there is there's a man um, I always fear saying things. But it was Greg Bolton. I don't know if you guys know Greg Bolton. He's a deacon here, a godly man, not a perfect man. He wouldn't say that. But I remember I'm sitting there with, with he's, a de- he's just a tremendous man. I'm sitting there with all these young men, and I remember the night that Greg Bolton just showed up, right? And Greg, we all know Greg's a godly man, right? He's a godly man. And as soon as he walked in, all the young men, they started standing straighter. They stopped talking foolishly and they started watching Him. They watched the way He held His Bible. They watched the way He opened His Bible. They watched the questions that He said and afterwards they asked Him questions. Once again, I just gotta say, and it's a challenge before me and for all of us, that's the blessed life. The blessed life is ending strong, living it strong, serving the Lord not talking foolishly, man, I pray that we would be a people that count this as the blessed life. And not the other silly things that you can read about, here. about. A lot of stories going on there. Um, I'm telling you, man, we got one TV in my house, and we got two. We got one that we watch. We don't have cable, and but we have these little ears, these rabbit ears. And I'm telling you, you can turn it on and you get like 20 Christian stations, 20 sermons of all sorts of things. I don't know. Maybe you know about it. But I'll turn it on sometimes, and I'll sit there, and I'll watch someone start preaching. And I hear people talk about the blessed life, meaning money and all that stuff. And I am telling you, there are so many times I've almost just broke my television sets. You know what I'm saying? None of that's in my notes, so that was free of charge. All right. So if I come up here one day and say, guys, I broke my TV, you don't know why. 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Why is he confident in this? Because God promised this in Genesis 46. God said it. He believes it. It's going to happen. He is confident and assured of the providence of God. Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. Now, once again, we're all aware that that's the Egyptian custom, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Confidence. Hey, God said it. God said it. We're going to come out of Egypt. You may not see it right now. It may be several hundred years, but you rest assured we're coming out of Egypt because there's a promise land and we're going to it, right? He knows that God is in control and he knows that our perspective or their perspective, you may not see it, you may not understand it, make no doubt about it. It will come to pass and it does. And it does. And that brings us to the end of the book of Genesis and the end of the life of Joseph. Now, I would say this, um, you get to the end of the life of Joseph and you think, or I think, maybe you would think this too, that's kind of anticlimactic, right? I mean, there's, the dude dies. It's just kind of anticlimactic. Peaceful death. You may ask, why does this life that started out so crazy end up just kind of peaceful and anticlimactic? Here's what I want to say, and I want to connect this, and it's really important for us. Genesis is the book of beginning beginnings book number one. There's 66 of them. There's something bigger that we're supposed to be paying attention to. Jesus. And there's one hero. And this is kind of anticlimactic, because Jesus hasn't come yet. And it's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's currently about Jesus. And forevermore, it's going to be about Jesus. Now, I will say this. I realize some of you may be here today, and you may have a heavy heart, and you may have real sin, and you too may be like Joseph's brother, wondering this, wondering this. If I come to Jesus, will he be good to me? Will he embrace me? Will he love me? I will tell you, I will promise you, I can guarantee you this. Just as Joseph responded to his brothers, Jesus will respond to you.
0: Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast.